Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. I'm Kate Norris. I'm Thomas Craft. And we're here to help you plan, design, and deliver your best presentation. Oh, yes, bosses. It is episode 58 of the Presentation Boss Podcast, and we have a massive guest with us today. We do. We have Michael Port, who is my absolute number one <laughs> wish list guest. We've been following his work for years and years and years. He wrote the book, Steal the Show, which is hugely popular. It's been recommended by more than one guest on our show. It's the book for speaking and for speaking performance. Michael is an absolute master in the field. Yes, I and I think Kate have listened to an absolutely huge amount of Michael Port on both his podcast, also called Steal the Show, and he's always a guest on plenty of other podcasts as well. And he's probably regarded not just as the guy who wrote the book, but the world's best presentation performance coach and absolutely has a lot to share. Yeah, to be quite frank, I didn't think that we were going to get Michael for a couple of years (laughs) into this podcast. So the fact that we've got him now has just blown our minds, as has, you know, a lot a of our guests. guests. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So many that we've had in the last couple of months. We cannot believe that we've got them. It's so exciting for our podcast, for our business, for us. It's just. And, and for you guys, the listeners. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Why don't we stop teasing, Kate? Let's hear Michael's bio and play the conversation for everyone. All righty. 25 years ago, Michael Port earned his MFA in acting from NYU before working in TV, film and theatre. Now at the Heroic Public Speaking Headquarters in New Jersey and for organisations around the world, he teaches non-actors what actors know about how to give better performances both on stage and off. Michael is the author of eight books, including Book Yourself Solid and Steal the Show. They've been translated into 29 languages and been on the bestseller lists of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, among others. His clients include Disney, Best Buy, Guardian, Navy SEALs, FBI agents, astronauts, and thousands of others who care deeply about making a difference in the world. So we've had a couple of guests on our show, and a couple of them have been alumni of Heroic Public Speaking. And today we have one of the co-founders of Heroic Public Speaking, Michael Port. Welcome to the show, Michael. Well, thank you so much. So, Michael, um, we've got your official bio, but tell us what's between the lines there. Tell us about Mark. (laughs) I've been trying to answer that question my whole (laughs) life. Uh, So I'm turning 50 this year. And uh, yeah, I've always loved getting older. I know that's uh, maybe not typical, but uh, but I love getting older because it continues to give me an opportunity uh, just to see how many mistakes I've made in my life. And, uh, and I always see the future as an opportunity for continued growth and self-expression. And I'm really just uh, somebody who loves performing uh, and is typically nervous every single time I do it, no matter how many times I've done it. Uh, I love being a dad and I'm often nervous uh, when I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm making big parenting decisions. Uh, I started gardening recently and I'm nervous that I'm doing it all wrong. So my point is, is that, you know, even if you do uh, uh, big things in the world, even if you are out in the public eye and have had some success, uh, it's not unusual to, to still be nervous about, uh, you know, the big things that you're up to. 
Uh, and so uh, I think I struggle with a lot of the same things that most people do uh, in my own individual way. But I feel really, really grateful to, you know, have the opportunity to get to do the work that I do and to serve the people uh, that I serve. Yeah, I really love that. I love that um, view that not everyone who looks confident is always completely confident. I really love that um, kind of behind the scenes look there. It's, you know, it's true. I mean, when I look at your lovely faces, I know we're doing a podcast recording, but I can see you now. And you guys look so um, healthy and confident and charming. And, and I'm thinking, oh, I, I hope I do a good job for them. You know, so uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a completely normal to feel, even, even professional performers uh, still question their work. Uh, and I think if you're not questioning your work, then you might have plateaued. If you, if you make the assumption that everything you're doing is right, uh, then you, uh, you may get stuck. I'll give you an example. So uh, Andrew Davis, a good friend and colleague, uh, he and I are writing a book. And, you know, I, I, I was working on some, I was working on a chapter that was my responsibility and I've been working on it for a few days and I was, I was disappointed with what I was producing. And uh, so I took a little time to, to review the chapter and I, I realized that what I was doing was writing from a place of knowing rather than from a place of curiosity. Because <laughs> if, I, if I write from a place of knowing, then I already have all the answers. And you might think that's what you know, an expert is supposed to do. Here, here, here are all the answers. But I think that, uh, that that's not enough for, uh, for the people you serve. I think that rather than thinking just like an expert who understands what the best practices are and, uh, and, you know, and sharing those best practices, uh, if you want to, I think, really be a change agent uh, and, and advance um, uh, the work of a particular field, then you might want to think like a visionary and a visionary tends to ask a lot of questions uh, to try to solve uh, problems that Google can't. So one of the things that Andrew and I are addressing in this book uh, is this concept of, uh, uh, of the difference between an expert and a visionary. And in the world of speaking and writing, uh, the the last decade or so has been focused on establishing expertise. You want to you want to do well as a as a as a speaker, then you need to be seen as an expert. You need to be perceived as an expert. But but experts are a dime a dozen at this point. Mm. I mean, I'm learning how to garden, and so I can go and watch as many videos as I could possibly, I could spend the rest of my natural born life watching videos on gardening. There are so many videos on gardening and every uh, gardener presents, you know, the best practices. But the people who tend to really stand out are the ones who are visionaries. And visionary may know what the best practices are, but a visionary tends to challenge conventional thinking. A visionary tends to uh, be able to answer questions that typical experts can't because they're moving beyond best practices. They're asking questions that Google cannot answer. Uh, and as a result, uh, they live in a, a slightly more rarefied 
space. They're not better people. They're just approaching the work in a slightly different way. And so when I evaluated the work I had done, I realized, oh, wow, I'm really writing from a place of knowing. I've got to get back to writing from a place of curiosity. And so when I did the next edit on that chapter, I asked many more questions. And as a result, it made that particular chapter better. So the, the older I get, the longer that I uh, spend in this work, you know, we're going on 17, 18 years now, uh, just in this particular field, uh, the more that I focus on uh, asking questions and trying to solve problems that I have not yet answered, rather than just continuing to regurgitate uh, the same best practices uh, that uh, are currently in place, because uh, there's always something missing. Yeah, right. There's, um, <laughs> it's interesting for me to hear that coming from um, somebody like yourself, who I think we would consider potentially the world's number one uh, presentation and speaking coach, certainly as far as uh, the performance aspect goes. So I guess that leads me into the question of what, what got you started in the speaking world, Michael? <laughs> well, I uh, didn't. So I was an actor. That was my first career. And I have a yeah. master's in fine arts from uh, NYU. Uh, I acted professionally for a number of years and I had a modicum of success. You know, I did um, uh, guest starring roles on shows like Sex and the City and Law and Order and uh, 100 Center Street and uh, some films and a lot of voiceovers and commercials, things like that. But uh, I, I was a little too immature at the time, I think, to, to, to stick it out. I wanted more faster and I was very impatient and I wanted uh, success so I was, I was a little more interested in the work at that time for the success of the work rather than the doing of the work. Make sense? And I think that yeah, yeah. When, when you're focused on having success in something rather than uh, really doing deep work, uh, then if the success doesn't come quickly, uh, you might bail quickly, mm. uh, which is what I did after about uh, four years of working <laughs> professionally. I said, okay, I'm going to go, maybe I go into business and, and see if I, uh, if I can have some success there because maybe I can have more agency, more control over my future. You know, the, in the acting world, you spend a lot of time waiting for other people to give you jobs. Mm. So when I told my agent uh, at the time that I was leaving, I think I, I heard her jaw actually hit the desk. <laughs> like a big thump. And she's like, you're just on the cusp. I was like, I'm the cusp of what? I don't know. So, you know, I was still in my late twenties uh, at the time. And I talked my way into a job for which I was completely unqualified. I told them I was unqualified, uh, but I made my case uh, as to why I thought they should hire me. They gave me a shot. And within a short period of time, I ran, I was running the division for the company. And it was a public company uh, because in large part, I didn't know how things were done. So I was able to come up with often new innovative ways of doing the things that needed to be done just simply because I didn't know how they were done. So I didn't just rely on current best practices. You see, there's a theme starting. To, I'm seeing the theme mm, here. Yeah, yeah, of course. Starting to pop up. Um, but uh, ultimately, I, I thought maybe uh, I should go out on my own and be a consultant for that industry. Uh, which I did. And so I went to a conference uh, to learn a little bit about uh, what it takes to be a consultant. And that was the first big event that I'd ever been in where, where I saw speakers. I had really never been exposed to that world. And, you know, I saw the first speaker and then the second speaker and then the third speaker and then the fourth speaker. And by the end of the day, I sat there and I thought, wait a second, I could do that. 
I mean, I could do that. I just have to figure (laughs) out what, what the heck I would say, but I could do that. Because what I realized is all of my training as a performer had primed me for that environment. And my natural disposition uh, as a teacher uh, lended itself well, because acting and, and public speaking are not the same thing. Yeah, uh, there yeah. are many, many actors that uh, would be absolutely petrified uh, to have to give a speech. And I'm sure you've yeah. seen some of the speeches, <laughs> oh, some of the speeches yeah. at the award yeah. shows, Golden Globes. Or even um, uh, even like TED events where they put an, uh, some sort of famous actor or such on stage yeah. for 18 minutes. And, it's... and you just assume, oh, because they're an actor, they're going to yeah. do this brilliantly. But they really are two different uh, art forms. Mm. Uh, however, the craft of acting, if applied to the speaking art form, uh, can be incredibly powerful because... You know, there are, there are things that actors know if they're trained about how to move on the stage, how to create moments, how to use language uh, through a technique called content mapping that uh, gives uh, life and vibrancy uh, and complexity to the language. And so there's, there's so much that, uh, that can be transferred uh, but it, of course, it's not. It's not. Uh, it's not exactly the same thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, I spent you know years and years uh, as a speaker before I realized, uh, really, really, really understood how to translate the craft of the actor uh, into the world of uh, public speaking or for the public speaker. And then, of course, uh, it took me a, you know many more years to be able to articulate it in a way that is helpful to non-actors. Because the language that you know I might use if I was talking to an actor or directing an actor uh, can't be exactly the same uh, language that I would use for a speaker because they're you know they they have different context uh, and a different background. So one of the things we've done at Heroic Public Speaking is create a language uh, that is consistent uh, for all of our performers, and as a result, they're able to support each other very very well uh, in rehearsal process. And if you don't have a shared language then often you're trying to translate uh, and it's very confusing. It's one of the reasons that we tend to suggest people do not take unsolicited feedback uh, from people that are not uh, trained in the work because often people know what they like and what they don't like. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that they know how to, how to articulate uh, <laughs> to that performer what that performer should be doing to, so true. <laughs> to actually have an impact. You know, I, I'll give an example. So let's say, so I, I, I'll give you an example based on a, qu- a question that somebody brought to me once. They said, listen, I'm very confused because I, I was giving a speech and um, one person comes up to me afterward and said, listen, I really liked a lot of what you did, but I, I have to say you were just, you had way, like way too much energy. It's like just too much energy. Uh, and I said, oh, okay. And they said, yeah, but then it was weird because the next person said to me, listen, I really liked what you did, but you really didn't have enough energy. Like I would, yeah. need, I would like to have more energy. And, mm. and, the, and the person said, I'm just so confused because which is it? I said, well, maybe it's neither. Yeah. Maybe, it's, maybe it's neither. It, it could be a whole host of things. I, I've got to actually see the speech to be able to tell you, but let's just say that your content wasn't well organized. So because your content wasn't organized, maybe the first person, uh, they got, uh, they had a hard time understanding what you were trying to share. Uh, and as a result, they felt your energy more 
uh, and they had a harder time understanding what you were trying to say. So for them, that felt like too much energy. For the other one, uh, it felt like the opposite because they were trying to grasp the content, but it felt like it wasn't driving forward with any kind of momentum from an idea perspective. You know, you weren't stacking your ideas uh, one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other, until you actually uh, reached a salient point that uh, they could consume and then act on. So they felt it was too slow. So they described it as low energy. So one of the things that that occurs uh, when you've done a lot of training in the craft of performance is you're often able to translate the feedback that you get so that if you do get unsolicited feedback, or even if you solicit the feedback, you're able often to parse it so that you know, A, what they're actually saying, and then B, you can act on it to do something about it. Mm. All right. So then be there able to actually act on that feedback. And I mean, this is, this is a problem that we face um, as well, because we are speaker coaches and we see the same thing. People get these completely contradicting pieces of advice and they don't know what to do with that advice then. Mm-hmm. Um, so can we just kind of backtrack just one small step? Can you just tell us a little bit about heroic public speaking, what you actually do, who you um, help in particular? Yeah, sure. So at Heroic Public Speaking, we work with a few different types of professionals. So certainly people who either are already professional speakers or are on a path to becoming a professional speaker. Uh, We also work with entrepreneurs who use speaking as a way to advance uh, their business and brand. And then we also work with individuals who are mission-driven in that there's something really important to them that they uh, want to get out into the world and they want to change the world in some way and they're using speaking uh, to amplify their message. But ultimately, all of the work that we do is about uh, changing the world because a speech has the power to change the world and the people in it and the speaker as well. In fact, often, especially the speaker, because in order to do transformational work, meaning work that transforms an audience in some way, shape, or form, requires often that we, as the presenter of that information, transform through the process of developing that material and the presentation. Because again, this is the big difference between the expert and the visionary. Mm. If you're an expert, Uh, You can do a decent job putting together your expertise in a speech and delivering that expertise that is helpful, that is informative, and Mm -hmm. uh, gives people information that uh, they can act on. Now, there's a lot of people who can do that. And I think that there's a lot of value in that. And that's uh, what uh, you'll find in most breakout sessions at conferences around the world. But that doesn't mean that you're changing the lives of the people in the room or that you're helping them see the world differently. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that a transformation occurs. Now, it may not be important to you to create any kind of transformation or advance a, a mission of, of some kind. But a lot of the people we work with uh, have a, a deep desire uh, to do more than uh, just share what they know. Very often, what they want to do uh, is answer some of the world's biggest questions 
or at least raise some of the world's biggest questions to get people thinking differently uh, about the world in which they live. Uh, and as a result, uh, they're creating a transformative experience for that audience. And what we have found over the years is that in order to do that successfully, very often you as the speaker go through a very deep and transformative experience in the process of developing that material. And if you do, often that material becomes signature intellectual property that you make your name on uh, and really do start uh, a movement of change uh, that, uh, that supports the professional objectives that you have as a, as a thought leader and really supports the growth of, uh, of an industry or uh, changes the trajectory of uh, a field. And that's really incredibly exciting. Uh, but it does require deep work. It's not, it's not, it's not uh, shallow work. It requires often yeah. really challenging exploration uh, of the ideas that you're presenting rather than just giving it lip service. And very often, you know, people uh, do the absolute minimum going into a presentation, just relying on their expertise. You're, <laughs> well, I know, I know this stuff, so I'll create an outline. I'll, I'll put together, you know, a PowerPoint, uh, and that'll be my, you know, my crutch so that I can just sort of know where I am during it. No. And maybe I'll yep. run, through it, run through it a couple times oh, no. <laughs> in my head uh, before, uh, you know, I do it. Or maybe I'll, I'll mumble through it in the hotel room a couple times beforehand. But, you know, I'm an expert, so I, I know all this stuff. I'll just talk uh, about what I know. Yeah. And, and that's fine. You know, and I did that for years. And you can certainly get away with that. Uh, but... Uh, I think generally you leave the stage and you know that you're capable of more. You just might not know how to do it mm -hmm. because if you haven't had training in the craft of content development, uh, stagecraft, uh, performance, then you may really not know how to continue to improve that work. Uh, and that's one of the things that we do at HPS is teach them a process so that you're no longer just relying on talent because talent is very overrated if you have a process however that you can use from the very beginning of the ideation phase uh, and through the content development and the script writing and the rehearsal uh, into performance then every time you approach a new speech or a, a new idea you know that well it may be a little bit messy along the way but eventually i will get to a place where I can create a transformational experience for the audience because I'm process oriented. And I'm not just relying on talent or my natural ability to be charming. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's, it's, it's much easier because it's no longer about you and, and whether you're smart and how, how good you look up there, uh, but it's really about the work uh, and how you're trying to make the people in the audience feel think and act. Because if you want to change the way people behave, then it's really, really important to be able to change the way they feel. And nothing, look, you know, nothing is more true than raising teenagers. You want to try to change the behavior of a teenager, uh, good luck just trying to share information with them uh, that is logical, uh, best practices for living. That's not uh, going to uh, work on most teenagers. Uh, but if you can try to, if you can try to 
tap into how they feel and, and they know that you understand the way the world looks to them. And then you can play the right actions that will influence the way they feel so you can change the way they feel so they now become open to a different set of ideas. Well, then they may start to consider those ideas. And then if they consider those ideas as if they're not forced upon them, but they're their ideas, then maybe they'll actually act on them and do something about it. So, Mm. uh, you know, most people have have experienced this. What's so fascinating to me about performance is that most of the things that we teach in our work are representation of the things that people actually do naturally, but don't realize they're doing. So for example, Mm. there's a technique in performance called playing actions. It is a very, very well-established acting technique. And the idea is as an actor, you're given a script and you're playing a character uh, that has been written for you. If it's well-written, then the writer has, has made the character's super objective, their overarching objective for that story, that, that movie or that play, clear what they're trying to achieve by the end of that story then your job as a performer is to go after achieving that objective. Now, if the writing is strong, then the writer will have put a lot of obstacles in your way. Then what's exciting for an audience is to watch that character attempt to overcome those obstacles in pursuit of that objective. And it creates conflict and drama, which is often very exciting. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we, Amy and I, my wife, Amy and I, uh, we uh, we like to keep the drama off this uh, uh, on the stage and out of uh, personal life because we feel that uh, most of us are living out uh, theatrical experiences on a daily basis. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, it's, so true. <laughs> it, it's really quite exhausting. I mean, most conflict is really just entertainment. That's what it is. We, we create conflict in our life so we have something to entertain us. Now, most people, they haven't really thought about that long and hard would go, I don't mm. do that. What are you talking about? It's not my conflict. It's someone else creating conflict. Well, okay, fine. Uh, but uh, if, yeah. if that pushed a button for you, then it might be worth considering. But we go to the cinema, we go to the theater because we want, we want to be entertained by the conflict that exists on the screen or on the stage. And so we like to keep it there and out of our personal lives so much. The re- this idea of playing actions is so important because if the performer is trying to achieve that objective and the writer has put obstacles in their way, then what that performer needs to do, what that actor needs to do is play actions that are going to influence how the other characters feel in order to try to get what they want. Mm-hmm. Now, we do this as human beings throughout the day, all day long. We're often doing it unconsciously. Uh, which can be problematic because we may not be playing actions that are going to get us what we want. In fact, we may be acting out neurotically against uh, some of the uh, desires that we have. So uh, for example, if you, if you're going to the coffee shop and you want a cup of coffee and there's a big line, you are probably going to uh, act in a way that will influence how the people behind the counter feel so that you get the coffee you want as fast as possible. So what are you gonna do? You might try to flatter them. That's, that's an action, that's playing an action. You're gonna to try to influence how they feel. You might want to uh, praise them, make them feel proud of themselves. Yep, yep. Uh, because that might influence 
how they behave. Well, maybe they'll get your coffee before they get the coffee of the jerk next to you. Uh, but sometimes we act unconsciously and we're annoyed that we're in the line and we, we watch the people behind the counter and we think, oh, they're working too slowly or they're chatting with each other. So then we go up there and when we order our coffee, we play an action trying to make them feel bad about their behavior. Uh, so, you know, we go up there and we say, uh, so gosh, you know, the line has been quite long. I really would like a uh, cappuccino. Thanks so much. It's now, kind of passive aggressive, isn't it? It's very passive aggressive, mm. but we're playing in action. We're we're yeah. trying to influence how they feel. Now, yeah, now, okay, if we, okay, yeah, I think that just clicked for me. Yeah, so if we're if we're being more intentional about it, because we said, well, all right, well, we want to get a good cup of coffee, we want to get it quickly. How about we say, uh, we when we go up there, we play a different action, which is to make them feel uh, uh, understood. So the first thing we say is, oh my God, I can't imagine how hard it would be. To, to try to manage a line of, uh, of under-caffeinated, uh, <laughs> obsessive, <laughs> compulsive people uh, on a Monday morning. Just want to say thank you so much uh, for putting up with all of us. You know, I'd love a cappuccino. You know, take your time. Uh, I'll just be hanging out over there. Thanks mm. so much. You're just going to get a, you're likely to have a, to make them feel a little bit more appreciated. And as a result, you may get what you want. So we're doing this regularly. And, you know, someone once said to me, yeah, but if you're, if you're doing this intentionally, isn't that manipulative? Well, it depends how you, uh, mm. you know, you see the world. If you see the world as a place where you're going around manipulating people for your benefit at their expense, well, yeah, then maybe you'd see yeah. that as manipulative in a negative way. But if you, if you see the world as a place where you can have a positive influence and also get the things that you want, well, then you probably would be comfortable being intentional about how you make other people feel because we affect how people feel all day long. When we're, even if we're just driving in the neighborhood and we pass a neighbor and we wave out of, you yeah. know, out of the window of our car, the way we wave influences how they feel. If we just go, you know, hey, mm. what's up? Put our hand up and put it down real quickly with no smile. They go, geez, I guess my neighbor doesn't like me. I don't feel really good about myself. What did I do? Uh, but if we wave with a big smile, hi, you know, then we make them feel a little bit better because it looks like we appreciate them and like them. So, so that particular technique is something that actors use and it can be used on the stage for public speaking. It can be used in life uh, just to have a much more intentional way of interacting with the world so that you're much more conscious about the choices you make both as a human and as a performer. And this is why I say that performance just represents the human condition. So if uh, we can take absolutely anybody, talent or no talent, uh, and help them become better performers by showing them that they already know how to influence other people. They just may not be doing it consciously at present. And I would hazard a guess that most people would have no idea how much they could mm. potentially influence others or they are influencing others. Yeah. I think that's true. I don't think we recognize a, how much we already do influence others mm. and B how we can intentionally make choices to influence other people more positively, uh, both for the benefit of others and for the benefit of ourselves. It's kind of like the teenager example you used earlier. Like you need to help them with making better decisions for their own lives. You're not manipulating them um, for any bad reason. 
Uh, well, I mean, they may think so, but well, no, of course. We, we, we don't, of yeah. course. Yeah. So con, con men have been using, you know, these mm. kinds of techniques for years, you know, in, in order to take advantage of people. But the kind of people we work with are the kind of people that have dedicated their lives to serving other people and making the world a better place. I mean, everybody from uh, astronauts to Navy SEALs to uh, admirals to mission-driven entrepreneurs. I mean, these are people who care deeply about service, uh, and that's always first and forefront on our agenda. Uh, and, you know, when we work with somebody, we don't have any particular agenda. Our agenda is always uh, to support the agenda of the speaker themselves. And so, you know, we say that if one of the most important uh, aspects of our work is that it's invisible, is that you don't see yeah. the craft, you see the human being on the stage and you get affected by the message that that person is sharing. So craft should be transparent. So we say that if, if, if you ever see one of the people that we work with and you say, oh, that's a heroic public speaking speaker or that's a Michael or Amy Port uh, speaker, then we failed. Yeah. Because no, there is no one way of presenting that works for everybody. There is no one way to do this work. Uh, and mm -hmm. as soon as you start to buy into the idea that there's only one way to approach a creative process, uh, well, then you're constrained. Then you're, then you're suggesting that, <laughs> that everybody is the same, that everybody uh, you know, thinks the same. And there's only one way to approach it. And that's just not, you know, something that as artists, uh, we consider, we really do believe that there are hundreds of different ways uh, to approach this work. Uh, and, uh, and the approaches that we take are varied so that it is a little bit more complex uh, to, to not be formulaic, yeah. but it also is much more interesting. And we find that it attracts just very sophisticated uh, people who don't want to be stuffed into a box and, you know, told that they have to move this way or, uh, or, or always do this with their head. Like people come to us, you know, could they say, what do, what do I do with my hands? You know, so <laughs> no, we get that question all the time. Classic. <laughs> yeah. yep. It's a classic question. And as soon as somebody asks that question, of course, I know that they have never done any training Yeah. because, <laughs> because you, the last thing you would ever think about is what to do with your hands. Because if, you're, if you know how you're trying to affect the audience and you are in pursuit of that objective with full commitment, making big choices in service of that audience, your hands will do exactly what they're supposed <laughs> yeah. to do. Just like they do when you're having an engaged, heightened conversation with somebody else about something you care about. Yeah. So then in say, um, like let's look at the corporate environment because I know you've worked there as well like if you've got a process to rehearse how do you rehearse without it looking i guess like the amy and michael way and how do you then ensure that you're still being authentic because that's the thing that we get a lot of pushback on um as speaking coaches ourselves is i just want to be authentic i don't want to rehearse because <laughs> yeah. i want to be authentic yeah well see authentic has got is become such a big buzzword yeah, yeah actually, it's huge i actually find it funny authentic usually really truly if we're just being honest if we're being candid about it means uh, i don't want to do any work that that's what it's authentic exactly means that. It's yeah. like, I don't want to do any work on this. So uh, I just want to be authentic. Now, yeah. again, uh, some people go, that, that's not what I mean. Like, yeah, well, okay. So, uh, so what do you really mean by authentic? Well, you mean you don't want to look fake. That's, yeah. that's, that's I get that. Okay. So, yep. Yep. Um, so that, but if we are actually authentic, 
100% of the time. That means we're going to show up for some speeches uh, after a plane uh, ride that uh, took 24 hours with a, with a cold uh, <laughs> and uh, some business issue going on at home and a kid issue at the same time. And we're going to be tired and a little bit stressed. And we're going to walk out there and be like, listen, because I believe in authenticity, I just want to tell you, I don't really want to be here. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I like the money they're giving me, but uh, you guys were kind of, you look tired. You, you don't even look like you want to be here. That, that's not going to be a great opening. But that's just, authenticity. That's, that's authenticity. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, hor- horrendously destructive. And, and very destructive. So we filter all the time. You can mm-hmm. filter and still be incredibly authentic. And in fact, often that is such an important part of being, of being authentic is being able to filter so that you're not interfering with the mission at hand. Yep. And he, here's the thing. I'll give you an example. There are many, many people who have tried rehearsal and they have found that it didn't work for them for, <laughs> for, for reasons that are not yet clear to them. So sometimes yeah. people will come and say, listen, you know, Michael, I've tried rehearsal. Doesn't work. I doesn't feel work really. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. work for me. I, it's just, I, be, it's I just better. I just do it. I'm just authentic and in the moment. And yeah, oh, right. Because, yeah, we get them. <laughs> yeah, and so and so here's what's ha- here's what's happening. The reason, and so I think they're right. Uh, meaning they tried some rehearsal and they didn't do well in their performance. Totally. Yep. yep. But Agreed. I but I think that they ha- they don't yet have the craft to be able to, as we were discussing before to understand or to translate why it didn't work. Mm. So the rehearsal uh, wasn't the problem. In fact, they didn't do too much rehearsal. They, they probably didn't do enough rehearsal yep. because here's what happens when you only do a little bit of rehearsal. When you're actually doing the presentation, while you're in that moment, instead of being present and uh, allowing yourself the freedom to play, you're back in the past trying to recall what you rehearsed. And so you're not actually in the moment with the audience. Because if you only do a little bit of rehearsal, it's not yet in your body. It's not yet something that you can recall uh, at a moment's notice. And you have Um, to work too hard to try to recall what you had done in rehearsal. And as a result, you're not in the moment on the stage. So you feel stiff, everything feels slow. uh, and, uh, And it feels a little bit, uh, contra- uh, constrained uh, and tight. Whereas the professional performer has done so much rehearsal that they can throw away everything, meaning they can forget about all of the words. They can forget about everything they worked on right before they walk on stage and allow all of that work to come to them in the moment such that it feels like it's happening for the first time. And it is ironic that the better rehearsed you are, the more naturalistic it actually seems to an audience. It's almost like it's, um, it's not so much being rehearsed at that point. I know we talk about it's being internalized. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so that's why I like the concept of it feels like it's happening for the first time for that audience. It feels incredibly immediate to that audience. And so it feels naturalistic to that audience. And so I would say, let's think about naturalism over authenticity. Mm, Because naturalism is actually what the audience is looking for. And I think what that speaker is, is hoping to be able to produce or achieve. So when they say, I want to be authentic, 
what they often are attempting to say is that they want to be natural. Yeah. Yeah. Natural. Yeah. Because I, I think I slightly disagree with, you know, authentic means I don't want to do the work. I think they're scared of, you know, they've seen speakers who look rehearsed, who look um, uncomfortable, and they don't want to be that person. They don't want to look inauthentic. Um, and I think it's this concept of natural versus authentic. I it's almost like the English language needs a few more words in here to describe what we're talking yeah. about, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it is. It, I, yeah. It's, you know, maybe you've, you've met them too, but I've met a lot of folks who really don't want to do the work because it's, mm. it's, it's really difficult work to rehearse. It is not easy and it's not often fun. It takes, it takes so much it. humility to rehearse. Like it's, yes. it can be a confronting process. Like it's not yes. comfortable all the time. Yeah. Well, look, you know, there's a great documentary uh, b- uh, about uh, Beyonce's rehearsal process uh, up to the performance that she did at Coachella. And when they did that performance, they, they did it uh, two weekend performances. That's, that's it. Mm. But they worked, uh, they had a six month rehearsal uh, period for it. And what she said in that documentary is that it takes an enormous amount of humility to rehearse. Not everybody can do it. I'm, I'm basically basically a Coachella performer with that advice. <laughs> <laughs> I often rail against this, this talent issue that we, we have in our society because if you listen to the way that, uh, if you watch The Voice or if you watch mm. American Idol, etc., you continue to see people talk about how much talent these performers have. Yep. Yep. But if you actually watch the program and you watch the work that is mm. being done, you see, yeah, of course they're talented. Yeah, sure. But lots and lots of people are talented. They work really, really hard on the craft. Yep, yep. I mean, if you watch John Legend perform, his craft is extraordinary. It is at a level that is so precise that he knows everything that he's doing at every single moment that he's doing it. And so when a, when a professional performer walks off the stage, they can tell you if they dropped one word at the, you know, 20 second, mm. tw- uh, 22 minutes into the performance. They can tell you if they walked two steps too far <laughs> uh, when they made a cross, uh, you know, to stage right. They can tell you exactly which people in the audience were crinkling their, you know, rappers. But, uh, but an amateur performance, an amateur performer will walk off stage and be like, oh my God, I nailed it. That was incredible. I was so on. I, I don't remember any of it. I don't remember any of it. Yeah. But, but man. It's so true. Oh, I was so on. I was so on. But the audience did not have that same experience. And so we just need to be careful that we're not creating our own little bubble on the stage where we're having an experience, but it's almost independent of the experience the audience is having. Mm -hmm. Our job is to affect the audience. And so our job is not to try to affect ourselves. Our job is not to get ourselves into some kind of state. And then that's uh, the state that one needs to be in to be a performer, but rather to moment by moment by moment, continue to work on changing how the people in the audience feel. And that of course is gonna influence how you feel as a performer, but that's the way you're influenced by changing how they feel, not by changing yourself independent of them. For sure, for sure. I don't know how many hours I've listened to Michael Port on podcasts and in books, but 
obviously a thoroughly interesting human being. I'm just a little bit, I'm just a little bit envious of our audience because I don't get to pause this conversation and do what I normally do and just sort of stare into the ether and think <laughs> about what he said. So I'm just a little bit envious of our audience who I'm hoping have like paused two, three, seven times in this conversation. But uh, um, I, I do want to know, Michael, if you were giving advice to somebody who's just getting started in as a professional speaker and as a professional speaker, like maybe not from the stage, but within their professional role as part of their job, what one piece of advice would you give them? I'm not good at the one piece of advice. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I, I, do, I, I have, uh, I have, uh, maybe I just have too much advice. Um, <laughs> at least my children's children tell me that like, dad, I don't want to learn I don't want to learn anything else today. I said, yeah, but we're on quarantine. I don't have anybody else to teach. So they said, well, you got to go figure it out, dad. But you must, you must have like some um, philosophy or mindset that you, you would push no, people I'd, towards or. I, yeah, of course I do. You know, mm. I, I, I'd say this. One of the biggest mistakes that we see in the professional speaking industry is people starting out in the industry and primarily focusing on trying to build their brand through marketing. Okay. Because there's only one thing that we have seen to consistently generate new gigs. And when I say consistently, I mean consistently. Only one thing that we've seen to consistently generate new gigs, and that's delivering a speech that people want to see. Meaning you can get a lot of first gigs with marketing, but if you can't turn that, that first gig into a second gig and a third gig and a fourth gig and a fifth gig, then the speech is not yet a referable speech. The most secure type of lead that you will receive as a speaker is going to be a lead that was generated at a speech that you gave. If somebody sees you speak and they say, I want that person to be on my stage, or I want to get that person onto my company stage, well, then you're, you're very likely to get that gig. Yep. That's a stage side lead. And a stage side lead is always stronger than a lead that you bought through a Google ad or uh, because you put a one minute clip uh, of a video up on YouTube somewhere. Yeah. And so the mistake that we see people make is try to is focus on the marketing piece at the expense of the speech itself. Mm -hmm. Because if you want to produce demand and you want to have a career that has longevity to it, then you want to be able to produce work that creates compounding gigs so that every time you do a speech, you get two leads. Yeah. Those two leads should turn into at least one gig. Well, that's going to book you another gig. Well, the next time you do a gig, well, maybe you get three leads and maybe you book two gigs out of that. So the next time you now did two more speeches, you got two, uh, two leads for each one. You just book two more speeches and then boom, yeah. boom, 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 boom. So one gig turns into two, two, two turns to four, four turns to eight, eight turns to 16, 16 <laughs> turns to 32, 32 turns to etc. And so we have the population of the earth, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> but think about it. The speech is what matters. Yeah. You could have the, look, there's, a, there's, a, there's an economist named Dr. Elliot Eisenberg. And we yep. profiled him in this book that uh, Andrew and I are working on. Because when, when Andrew asked him, what do you do for marketing? He said, I pick up the phone. When people call, he doesn't even do any direct outreach. None. He does about 100 gigs a year as an economist. 
And he's not a Nobel Prize winning economist. He's in fact not a well-known economist outside of the, the fractal markets that he speaks. He, he focuses on uh, a very few specific small markets, but he speaks regularly in all of these places. But his work is so good that every time he does a speech, he gets multiple leads and books multiple gigs. If you go to his website, you know, with all uh, due respect to Elliot, you, you might think he's still in the 90s. He's not, he's not focusing on the marketing, he's focusing on the actual work itself that he's being hired to deliver. And the speeches are so much more effective than anybody else that the meeting planners are considering that he gets all the gigs as an economist in the spaces that he's working. And so mm. I think if you're not putting more time into the speech itself than you are into the marketing of that speech, uh, then I think you know, you're missing an opportunity. You, you're gonna get a lot of first gigs, but you're not gonna feel great about the work you do if those first gigs do not lead to, uh, to second, third, fourth, fifth spinoff gig. Yeah. Okay. It, does, it feels like a basic of, um, of any sort of selling situation, which is you have the product outstrip the promises of the marketing, right? That you basically deliver a little bit more than people expect you to. I mean, it totally makes sense when you're giving any sort of presentation as well, especially a... Um, well, I'm sure you guys have experienced the only problem with being a, a coach or a director in speaking is that uh, people's expectations go get so high that then you have trouble uh, meeting those expectations. Uh, so that's a, 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 it's not a bad problem to have, uh, but, uh, but it is one of those things where uh, it's like if you're a comedian and you're introduced uh, as yep. this is the funniest person in the world. Yeah. And you're like, ah, oh, Jesus. The, the, the expectation of the audience has just gone sky high. Yeah, and yeah exactly. Like impossibly high, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. So, Michael, I'm a little bit conscious of time. So, there is a question that we ask all of our guests, and I feel a little bit strange asking you because, um, as I said, I've got Steal the Show, which is <laughs> the book for me that's really had a huge impact on the way that I speak. But is there a book or a resource that's really impacted on the way that you speak? Hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that I suggest uh, people do is read plays. Uh-huh. If they want to become better speakers, read plays. And in some movie scripts too, but movie scripts are written very differently than plays because there's so much, uh, there's so much stage direction in film because, you know, it's a visual medium. So the, the screenwriters are describing what the what the audiences are seeing, and then there's usually less dialogue. But the reason I suggest reading plays is because the great playwrights are masterful at the use of language. So if you read contemporary playwrights, you, you start to feel this dialogue pop. You can feel the rhythms in the writing and the language, and some of them will even uh, do the content mapping for you. They'll have uh, words underlined, uh, dashes, uh, uh, ellipses, etc. So you can get the rhythms going. Uh, and one of the things that's really important to get a feel of as a speaker when you're working on uh, material that you're producing is the rhythm of the language because the spoken word and the written word uh, are different. Uh, the, the, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, the written word doesn't always, mm. you know, like- Oh, I don't, totally, yeah. Like you wouldn't really want me to take my books and just read them on stage. <laughs> it'd be, it'd be yeah. a long, long time on stage, a, if nothing it'd else. It'd be a very, very long presentation. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you want it to feel much more naturalistic than most writing does. Uh, but, uh, but read plays. 
Another book that uh, I think would be really, really helpful for folks who are trying to do deep work uh, yep. is a book titled Deep Work uh, by uh, Cal Newport. Uh, Cal Newport is a professor at Georgetown. He, was, he did his PhD at MIT in theoretical computer science. So he's a pretty brainy guy. Yeah. Uh, and and he's, a, he's a great writer as well. But he's a millennial who doesn't have social, doesn't do social media. He's uh, a famous author who doesn't need any of that social media to promote his books because his work is deep work and people are interested in his work, uh, not his little pithy comments on Twitter. <laughs> and so what he does is he helps you uh, detach from this very uh, distracting world that we live in so that you can do the deep work that is necessary, you know, for the kind of work that we do. And if you're in, in, you know, if I go back to what I mentioned earlier, when I was writing that chapter, the reason that I think I was writing from a place of knowing rather than a place of curiosity is because I was very busy and I was trying to steal time to get work done on that chapter. So I'd get 20 minutes here, 20 minutes there, half hour here. Uh, and that's not deep work, that's shallow work. And anytime you're doing shallow work, you're going to default to what you already know rather than having the time and the space to challenge your assumptions and ask uh, more penetrating, deeper questions that are, that's ultimately going to produce deeper work. So when people start into HBS grad, which is our longer term, very comprehensive training program that was modeled on our master's level training program in acting, uh, we ask people to read deep work uh, when they're starting because it gives them a really clear picture of what it takes to do deep work. Excellent. The last question is, and I'm sure people uh, have, have been very interested in what you've said, Michael, if they want to know a little bit more, where can people find you? Heroicpublicspeaking.com. Heroicpublicspeaking.com. And if you have a question, shoot it into questions at heroicpublicspeaking.com. Questions at heroicpublicspeaking.com. It'll take a few days to get to me because it goes through a filtration process. Um, but you, you, I'm not, you, you're not going to find me answering questions on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or any of those places because I subscribe to this concept of doing deep work. I think the people that I serve care more yeah, right. about, the, about the deeper work that I do for them uh, mm -hmm. than just being always accessible uh, on every single social platform, which then becomes incredibly distracting and you can't actually get any real work done. That makes sense. All right. Well, thank you so much, Michael. It's been uh, been an hour of, I've just been so deep in thought and concentration listening to you. So thank you so much for being on the Presentation Boss podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, I, you know, I always hope I, I do a good job uh, for you. And the only way to do that is to try to be helpful. Uh, and so I hope I was helpful. I've got a couple of notes scribbled down. So um, yeah, definitely got a lot of value out of this. Thanks for listening to today's show. Head to presentationboss.com.au slash podcast where you'll find the show notes for this episode, all other episodes and other free resources. If you know someone that you'd like to hear from on this show or think that you have something of value to share, email us at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend or we'd love for you to give us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find us. Have a great week. Um, of course, if there's something you say that you don't love for whatever reason, let us know and 
you've done podcasts before. We can, we can edit anything out. Um, I think that's about 90% of what I said. So, <laughs> uh, so I usually just let it go, you know, just let it ride. 